This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Liam O'Carroll commanded A Company of the 1st Battalion of the Irish Volunteers during the Easter Rising. We covered that story in the previous episode and rejoined Liam in Dublin Port after a long march under guard from Richmond Barracks in Inchicore. The plans for the rebellion were in ruins and the British response was just getting underway. We were put on board a cattle boat at the North Wall and eventually arrived at Nutsford Jail. We were held in solitary confinement in Nutsford Jail for a period of probably two to four weeks. After about three months in Nutsford, we were transferred to Frangock Internment Camp North. This consisted of an old distillery building and a number of army huts. We remained there for roughly three months. With a view primarily to keeping the prisoners' minds occupied, Various efforts were made, the most effective being the holding of classes and what I might call reading circles. The reading circles were generally for the reading of Irish history and the hearing of lectures from the more highly educated prisoners. I think it could safely be said that a number of prisoners who got there through accident rather than from their activities left Fran Gok confirmed rebels. On his return to Dublin, Liam immediately set about reorganising his old company of volunteers and was elected captain. The first order of business was to obtain arms and ammunition. My father had a small hand in this matter. He was running a shop in Manor Street at the time and managed to make a considerable number of contacts among the soldiers at the Royal Barracks adjoining. Any soldier who needed a few shillings could always obtain them from him the cost being some item of equipment. In this way, a considerable quantity of small arms was acquired, not to mention a considerable quantity of useless rubbish, which also had to be paid for, but on the balance we obtained the best end of the bargain. Gradually, the activities of the volunteers increased. One day in February 1918, Liam was inspecting an engineering class which was being run for volunteers. British soldiers raided the premises and arrested all 28 men present. We were removed to the Bridewell where we were held without any charge and no statements were taken or attempted to be taken from us. On the general policy of giving as much trouble as possible, we sent out a notice addressed to the incompetent military authority, setting out that the law required that a prisoner should not be retained in the Bridewell for greater than a period of 24 hours without being charged and that as this 24 hours had now expired and we were apparently forgotten, we were giving formal notice that we were on hunger strike, as from the sending of this letter. Some hours afterwards we were removed to Mount Joy. Here they were subjected to rough treatment, and Liam O'Carroll spoke on behalf of the men in protest. Demanding prisoner of war status, and being refused this, they determined to make as much trouble as possible for the prison authorities. The following scene played out at their trial. The prisoners refused to remove their hats. A considerable number of the public had been admitted to the court and there was a lot of confusion and noise. Sean O'Duffy managed to get into the solicitor's bench where the table was screwed down to the floor. He helped to organise the pandemonium from there. The magistrate ordered that O'Duffy be removed but he remained in the corner of the compartment and twisted his legs round the legs of the screwed down table. There was a struggle, and I think they could have been struggling until now without removing him, but I felt that it had gone far enough, and I called him to attention. He obeyed my order immediately, in first-class military fashion, 
saluted, and when I ordered him to retire, he marched out. The guardians of the law were so dumbfounded that they let him go. Liam ended up back in jail for a number of months due to the fact that he refused to recognise the court. He was released from Dundalk jail four months later. Afterwards, we had the usual parades and training, but nothing of any great importance, up to the murder of my father on the 16th of October 1920. I was not at home that night and had not been at home for some time. A message came to me telling me of what had happened at home. I went there. When I got home, I found that the body of my father had been removed to the Richmond Hospital. A notice appeared in the papers that day to the effect that the holding of an inquest was prohibited by military order and that in future, instead of an inquest in such circumstances, a military court of inquiry should be held. Naturally, no member of the family attended. A policeman was sent to the house stating that the court required a member of the family to attend to identify the remains. He was informed that we had no intention of going, that we did not recognise the court. At the same time, all the neighbours were warned to the same effect, as the police appeared to be making an effort to obtain somebody who would identify the remains. Eventually, a young brother of mine, Gerard, who at the time would have been about 12 or 14 years of age, was seized by the police and brought in the direction of the Richmond Hospital, apparently for identification of the remains. My mother heard about this, went after them and overtook them at the door of the Richmond Hospital. There was a scuffle and she succeeded in taking the boy from them. The three members of the court came out to talk to her on the footpath. They told her that they were there only in the cause of justice and to find out who was responsible for the murder. My mother's answer was that there was no need to hold an inquiry into the matter, that they themselves were personally aware of the identification of the murderers. The army having held both ends of Manor Street while the Tans carried out the murder. The three officers did their best to get my mother to come into the hospital with them, but she refused and left. We made the usual arrangements for the removal of the remains for burial and attended at the hospital at seven o'clock were a number of members of A Company. We entered the hospital, held up the hall porter and demanded the keys. He gave us the keys, at the same time informing us that there was no need for a hold-up, that he had just received instructions that if anybody called for the remains, they could be handed over. Here Liam ends his story, but I spoke to Finbar, his nephew, to get a better picture. So can you, can you describe in your own words what you know of the, the murder that night? I know that there had been a knock at the front door earlier that evening and that both my grandfather and grandmother were very suspicious. Later that night, there was another knock which my grandfather came down to answer the door. It was in the wee small hours of the morning and I had been given one or two different versions. One version was that a rifle was put through the letterbox and my grandfather was shot. The version I'm inclined to believe is that he actually answered the front door and he was shot through the temple in the head while still basically in his underwear, a pair of trousers on him, carrying his boots in his hand. The note on the body, seemingly that was, the note on the body was something to the effect of IRA informer, but that was quite a common occurrence 
by the black and tans at the time to try and take the onus of the murder away from them. It was nothing unusual. And with the background of the O'Carroll family in Manor Street, that would be the furthest thing from the truth. Like everybody knows that we're a mad hot IRA family from sister to brothers to the grandfather even the grandmother, because this was all gone under, on under her watch and she never objected or interfered. So obviously, that was just a no-no. And uh, history has proved that to be just nonsense. You know, it's just, it was completely refudiated at the time, as despicable really. I always remember too also whenever there was further raids on the house my granny would take a chair out into the middle of Manor Street and she would tell the black and tans if there was any more murdering to be done in Manor Street to go do it out here in the open where everybody could see them. Uh, in actual fact the child in the story uh, uh, my that, father, that, was, yeah. that was taken by the British soldiers to identify the body that was your father. Yes. Uh, so d- did your father ever speak of that incident? My father never, ever spoke of that incident. I have no memories of of him ever speaking of the murder or, in actual fact, of any kind of rebellion or trouble. The only thing I do remember was my father had a speech impediment and thanks to my mother, who had a great command of the English language at the time, she managed to get him to slow his words down concentrate on his pronunciation and in actual fact I'd say she actually done such a good job that he had no bother then having a command of the English language he, he was very good but another thing I remember from my father was that if he was pouring tea for us or anything to do with a kettle or thing, there was a constant shake in his hand and I often wonder to this day if that's the price he may have paid for all the activity that was happening around Manor Street and Stony Batter and Smithfield at the time. Obviously, as a 12 or 13 year old, it must have had some effect. And to me, they were the two effects. A, the stammer, and B, the constant shake in the hand. Then in your childhood, you, you got on very well with your uncle Liam. Myself and Liam, for some reason, just the chemistry was right. He just seemed to take a shine to me. I had melangitis when I was about 12 or 13 years of age. And Liam took a particular shine to me. He came to the house to visit me and then he would bring me out in his car. Quiet, unassuming man. I remember going into his home and there was a lovely smell of tobacco from his pipe. Beautiful. Always seemed to be a very serene type of room. I have vivid memories of a gun, a handgun. And also a memory of a picture of either Patrick Pierce, a drawing, a hand drawing, either of Patrick Pierce or De Valera. But it was a room of great tranquility and character, like particularly the tobacco smoke wafting in the room. You know, and he was a very quiet, unassuming man. Always wore boots, laced boots. I often wonder if it started throw back to his times in the Republican Army. But gentle kind of man, but very unassuming and never realised the life that he had led and you would never know by him that to me he was just an uncle. That's my fondest memories of him really. What do you think people should remember the O'Carrolls as? I would like them to be remembered as 
a strong family. A family that really believed in what they were doing. A family that stood up for justice against injustice. A family that sacrificed an awful lot so that we would have the republic that we have today. And I'd like them to be remembered for the strong people that they were and for the the heritage that they passed on to us as O'Carrolls. It's a thing that's in our DNA where we speak out against an injustice. We were always told it's morally wrong to keep your mouth shut and your eye down when there's an injustice. You have to speak out. And these are things that are in the blood. They're in your bones. And obviously the pride of these people. And I'd like them to remember it for the people that they were. That they were good people and that they really believed in what they were doing. For more, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. Many thanks to Finbar O'Carroll for his help in telling Liam's story. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.